Welcome to the Wesleyan Podcast, bringing you news and financial tips for doctors, dentists, teachers and lawyers. Hello, I'm Neil Whelan and welcome to the Wesleyan Podcast. It's been busy in the world of Brexit with vote after vote after vote, Theresa May racking up the air miles with trips to Brussels and Strasbourg, and sales of EU flags and loud hailers going through the roof on College Green in Westminster. And here with me again to help me try and make sense of it all is our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Vaudry. Hi. Welcome to the show. Or should it be the award-winning Robert Vaudry? Uh, depends which day of the week it is, but yes. So before we get on to, the, um, to Brexit, tell us about your award first. Let's get the good news out of the way. So I was delighted to win Chief Investment Officer of the Year um, 2019, which is, given I was uh, found out about it in January, <laughs> it's a bit presumptuous of them. So the pressure's on to have a good year. But anyway, it was a nice award. We had a very nice ceremony down in London um, where I received the award. And uh, I would love to say Robert's wearing it like Flavor Flav wears a clock around his neck. But, um, but no, he's just gathering just on the side now. Anyway, enough of that. Yep. Let's go on to the serious matters of Brexit. We're into the end game now. There's literally days left until the 29th of March, well, the original 29th of March deadline. And the past week has been yet another momentous one in Westminster. It started with meaningful vote two which the government lost again. So, let's start there, shall we? What actually happened there? Theresa May came back, having indicated that she was going to go back to her colleagues uh, at the European Union, European Commission, and secure um, changes to the withdrawal agreement. Uh, The bottom line was that not one word changed, she was then hoping that perhaps, in some magical sense, the um, the legal guidance might change. Uh, but to the Attorney General's credit, it didn't change. And so, literally, the same deal was put to the same group of people who rejected it with a historic vote against um, only a couple of months beforehand. And it was perhaps no surprise that it was heavily defeated again. 149 votes, wasn't it? It was 149 votes, yeah. So a day after that, everyone gathered again, and we had another vote on whether to take no deal off the table. Now this is... After the first vote, the meaningful vote, Theresa May got up and said she was putting forward a motion about taking no deal off the table. It was so confusing. When I watched it on TV, I had to rewind it to find out what she was actually saying, because it was like, well, take no deal off the table but then also agree that no deal is the default setting. So I said that was a government proposed motion, which they then, did they whip to reject it? Did they put it forward and then vote against it? They put it forward, uh, they announced it was going to not be whipped, so if people aren't familiar with the whipping concept, there are three degrees of uh, formality of votes. So most votes have one, you know, one level you know, it doesn't really matter. Two is you're you're suspected, you're, you're likely to be voting in favour of the party you're in. The three, line whip, whip. three line whip is it is a re- resignation matter, or at least it had <laughs> been a resignation matter <clears throat> if you breach a three line whip. Um, so the vote was not meant to be whipped. Then an amendment was put down because of the rather convoluted wording that the government in Theresa May's name had come up with. Uh, the amendment, I think caught some by surprise actually was successful so that became the substantive motion 
So then in a panic, the government then whipped against the substantive motion in their name. And um, I think they've suggested that it was there was confusion in the House. Uh, four cabinet ministers, despite there now being a whip, claimed that they thought they were still able to not vote um, against the substantive motion. Um, and they didn't. And that was, you know, cabinet collective responsibility, which is at the crux of our democracy mm-hmm. and how parliament works and how the executive functions. Um, yeah, voted again. So all hell broke out because of that. But the reality is the motion passed, uh, but without any conditions attached to it. So it was a motion that uh, is a guidance motion. It's not law, but it's meant to steer the direction of the government. But that's um, the thing, isn't it? Because it, it was non-binding. But then ever, ever since then, people have been saying, oh, well, that's definitely taken it off the table. But technically, it hasn't. You know, technically it hasn't. But I, I happen to think that if we were on the 28th of March and there was nothing else there, the government could induce a one-line piece of legislation that said we're taking it off the table. Um, that would have to be coupled with... And just to be clear, this is speculation. This isn't going to happen. But if, if we were in that sort of fantasy scenario it would have to be coupled with confirmation. The only way you could do that is for the government themselves to then unilaterally withdraw from the... Um, withdraw Article 50. Withdraw Article 50, thank you. Yes, my colleague there. That stray, that stray voice is James Heaney, yes. the, the <laughs> Investments Communications Manager. <laughs> Say hello, James. Hi, everyone. Yes, I am always usually sat here, but just normally quietly, because he's normally perfect. <laughs> so... The, <laughs> What day of the week are we on there? That was Wednesday. That, that, so, that was Wednesday. So, so, th- so Thursday's papers, interesting enough, and, and I think internal um, Conservative Party management was in uproar. So the fact that these cabinet ministers were allowed to, quote, get away with it, unquote, uh, I, I think really upset a lot of people. So it, I was of the view that come Thursday, those cabinet ministers would fall into line with whoever came out. So Thursday, the interesting vote initially was the Ben Amendment, which was going to allow um, Parliament to take back control for one day to basically schedule a series of indicative votes, which seemed to me extraordinarily practical. And I thought what Parliament kind of wanted. But anyway, the, the Conservatives were whipped, uh, the DUP were whipped, and it lost by two votes, mm-hmm. the amendment. So actually, uh, on Thursday, Theresa May just got through the bulk of everything she wanted to get through, which included a motion to delay um, leaving the EU until the end of June if we actually adopted um, a strategy for what we were leaving with. Um, Now, Theresa May is still saying that's going to be her meaningful vote number three, um, which she's bringing back to the House of Commons next week. Um, Without that the motion pretty much implies she is expecting to negotiate a long extension, long being probably longer than a year. Um, and that's meant to, in part, bring people into line. So we, th- we then get to the point about what happens next week. So I want to be clear, our position has been that we felt Theresa May would ultimately get a deal through, could be heavily amended, but would get a deal through, before the 29th of March, but that there would always going to be a request for an extension of time to get all the legalities lined up. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we're on track for that. And if she gets uh, meaningful vote three, or even possibly meaningful vote four through next week, then 
it works out fine. And from an investment point of view, we've been bang on and we can all you know, high five and, and move forward. This weekend, clearly, she's having lots of discussions with the DUP. Yeah. My guess is there is enormous pressure on finding some discussion about the legal advice. And they're talking about the Vienna Convention, but then a number of lawyers already said the Vienna Convention is not appropriate in this instance. But maybe there will be an argument that in some people's opinion it is. What would that mean exactly? Well, I don't know, if I'm honest. It's just a legal ease. <laughs> it, it allows Jeffrey Cox to claim, actually, I'm going to change his legal... He wants to change his legal advice and that there would be a circumstance in which we won't be tied to the withdrawal agreement. It, it strikes me as it's a weak argument, but, you know, lawyers can make lots mm-hmm. of different arguments. Um, maybe there's something else that can come out of this. You, you know, but it does appear now as so that the Democratic Unionists, the DUP, have enormous pivotal power. And I think a lot of people probably at their wits' end about this now. If you're a Remainer, you're worried about no deal still. If you're a Brexiteer, you're worried about if we don't kind of back Theresa May's deal now, you know, it, you there's a high probability we could lose it all or it could be a lot softer. So I think the fear factor is, is not something in terms of our negotiations with the EU. I think they're done with us. Um, it's about internal political machinations in Parliament. And I suspect the vote early next week on Meaningful Vote 3, I still struggle to think it will get through, but I think it will be quite close. And I suppose the the query will be, is it close enough that she then says, you know what, I'm going to go for Meaningful Vote 4, which may well be the point a couple of days before departure that it kind of gets through. So if it gets down to 50 or 60 votes... She, I'd say if the, if it's sub fifty, I think if if the majority is, if she loses by less than fifty, you know you could argue she's got real momentum. She's gone from two hundred plus to one hundred forty nine to sub fifty. It's moving in the right direction, and maybe people then begin to coalesce and say, you know what, this is it. That would take uh, twenty five more people to change their mind, to swing the vote. Maybe there's enough people who just come to the point of saying, I can't bear this anymore. We've got to have a deal rather than no deal. And despite Parliament's sort of, you know, uh, voting this week, it's going to be let's just get on and, and do it and move on with our lives and everything else. Because there's all the other things circling around it, like the European elections, which at some point we've got to yeah. stick or twist about whether we actually put people forward for them. Yeah, and I think that, I think that would be brutal to the incumbent party because um, you're then going to have you know, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, you know, with candidates and all the seats. And I suspect they will draw a lot of, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, all the Brexiteers will probably vote for them rather than the Conservatives at that stage. So I suspect they'll do rather well. I'd like to think you'd have on the other side an equivalent, whether it's the independent group, you know, standing up for the rain. But it would be it would be horrible out there and, and even more divisive than this whole process is. I think there is a point. You just we just have to make the best of where we are, which is not in a great place. I think from an economic perspective, but but you know uh, a phrase I try and stop using, but it seems appropriate now. We are where we are, and we just got to kind of get on with it. So um, I still hope that a deal will be done before the 29th of March. Where I do struggle is why, and I think it's the nature of the personalities involved. But 
if it wasn't for Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn right now, if, if they were removed from the process, my guess is a David Lillington and a Yvette Cooper, for argument's sake, would sit down and within half an hour come to some consensus that would actually get through Parliament because the Conservatives would give up their manifesto commitment but their red line on single market and customs union. Labour would give up you know, most of their red lines but agree to that. And you'd have a, you would have a soft Brexit deal, but you would be leaving on the 29th of March, subject to some technical extension. Um, and I think most people would sort of go, you're the majority. I, I think at that point, Parliament would actually represent where I believe, but it is speculation I accept, but I believe the majority of the country would just go, OK, we're leaving, that's what we voted for. But in, in a way that economically doesn't seem to be having too material an impact, and actually markets would rally and all the rest of it. So we seem quite good, and we just then kind of get on with it. But <clears throat> you know, at the moment, I'd say there's probably more chance of getting a meaningful vote for through than getting a you know a consensual soft Brexit deal through. Uh, that's where we are. But next week, there will be all... surprises. Well, that's it. If, if the last. Well, nearly three years have taught us anything. It's that expect the unexpected because, you know, just when you think it's all done and dusted, something else crops up. It has been as a, as a, I suppose, a political observer for 40 odd years, I suppose. It has been a weirdly fascinating period. Oh, absolutely, period. Yeah. And, and Parliament's become fashionable again. I mean, you know, I'll sit there at home and, um, you know, there'll be... You know, a couple of us around the telly kind of watching the debates at seven o'clock in the evening. I've never watched um, as much BBC parliaments as I have over the last yeah, six months. Yeah. In that sense, there are some good things that will come out of this. Maybe there is a, a, a new generation of, I hope, talented people who will think, actually, I can make a difference if I get elected there. Um, uh, I also, again, this is a personal opinion I'm expressing, but maybe it has come to the point where the traditional parties need a bit of a shake up. And and this may be a catalyst. I mean, not tomorrow, not the day after, but maybe in a few years' time, other parties do come out of this and we have a, a much more of a consensual style. I think in the modern world with social media and the like, the two-party political system where you seem unable to compromise uh, perhaps isn't expressing itself as providing great government anymore. Well, there, there are is other that, ways of doing it. There is that enormous middle ground now that the Lib Dems just can't, do anything with you've got this independent group who may or may not become a party in their own right so yeah the, you know if you're serious about making change that's probably the area to go for it's going to the middle ground yeah, yeah which yeah. i believe is you know probably where most <clears throat> of the population actually live yeah so as we say next up Theresa may goes back to brussels to ask for an extension to the march 29th deadline but and here's the thing it, it takes just one country to veto it and the extension to get rejected which as we approach the end now, it's almost like the, the Brexiteers have worked out how the EU works and realised that one country, just as Britain always has, has a veto where it can stop things it doesn't agree with. And now some of them are allegedly trying to manipulate other countries to say, you block this because it's in everyone's interests. I mean, Italy had been mentioned. I think Romanian Prime Minister, or, no, sorry, Hungary, his name was mentioned the other day as well. So... You know, it's all very well Theresa May going back to Brussels to ask for an extension, but we still might not get one. And then there we are on the 29th of March. I mean, interestingly, if if it was vetoed, I'll caveat that by saying I don't think it will be, but if it was vetoed, 
uh, we would be forced to unilaterally withdraw from Article 50, uh, which doesn't need um, the 27 to agree to. We can just to. do that we ourselves, can do that on we? our own. Interestingly, a very helpful judgment only a few months ago by, by the ECJ. That's right, yeah. So um, <laughs> it's a funny old world. However, uh, what's been interesting over the last few months is how a lot of the smaller nations in the EU have basically been saying to the Commission, we are looking at how you treat Ireland. Ireland has a specific issue over the backstop, and are you going to sell them out at any moment? And the fact they haven't, I think, has been you know, a positive, um, a, a, an upside sort of result of all this for the smaller countries yeah. to know that they are... That they have a voice in this. The EU's almost proven that it does work as a collective. Yes, and I, I actually, you know, I know there's a lot of emotion in the UK about how, um, you know, Theresa May's been treated and how, you know, the EU hasn't compromised. I have to say, from my perspective, they've been an absolute sort of professional organisation who's led this from the start, who haven't broken ranks, who, with one exception about how certain people deserve a place in hell, uh, Donald Tusk, perhaps not uh, a very frustrated Donald Tusk. Yes. I'll put it down that way. Um, you know, apart from that, I think they have been extraordinarily professional, and frankly, have made the best of a bad job for them, mm-hmm. for where they're coming from. And we don't like the fact we, the British, I think, and the, you know, the red top newspapers haven't liked the fact that they haven't caved in at the last minute and compromised and you know rolled over. It's um, they've looked really good. I think. I think history will have judged this is the moment where the EU dream actually kind of matured um, but on that note with the, having supported Ireland I think also the pressure of the machine to say this is not the time to veto this position albeit it would be in the EU's interest to force us to withdraw from Article 50 um, I think the pressure on a Hungary or an Italy will be such that if we go back there and say we want a, a short extension they, I, I would be very surprised if that turns into, no, you have to have an extension of at least a year and it's going to cost you billions and billions and billions. There will be a cost to extending our time there because, you know, we've not well, yeah. do it every year. So it should be on a pro rata basis, a natural extension. Now that, you know, whether that's a billion pounds, I don't know. But, you know, there should be a, a further cost to doing it. But it would be whatever cost had we not been leaving until that, the backstop date anyway. If it goes on for a couple of years, uh, different ball game. But I, I think they'll come back and they will agree a short-term extension. And on that note, that is our show for this week. Thank you, Robert, for that. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Wesleyan, you can find us at wesleyan.co.uk. You can search for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter at Wesleyan and on Instagram at Wesleyan underscore UK. I'm sure Robert and I'll be back soon whether we'll have left the EU, whether we'll be staying in or still stuck in the departure lounge. But until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.